You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Well, it's really good to be here with you guys this morning and sharing from the Word. Um, let me just start by asking you guys a question, and then we'll stand to our feet and read our passage and pray. But let me start by asking you guys this morning, what is the most valuable thing in your life? What's the most valuable thing in your life? Think about that for a minute. What most deserves your protection? What do you feel is most worth keeping safe? Think about that for a minute. And then stand to your feet and let's read this passage together. 2 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 14. And I'm actually going to read this from the New Living Translation this morning, but follow along. It says, Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard that precious truth that has been entrusted to you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather together as the body of Christ We thank you for the unity that you bring to this body, Lord Jesus, that through the faith in the gospel, the good news of what you have done for us, Lord, we are all brothers and sisters and part of your forever family this morning. Father, we just thank you that that grace and love and loving kindness is ours forever, Lord, and we look forward to just uh, being with you for all eternity and, and worshiping together and, and serving together for all eternity, Lord, in the, in the places and things that you have for us. Lord, this morning, help us to uh, guard the precious truths that you have entrusted to us. Help us to understand what they are. And Lord, help them to shape our future. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. This morning's sermon is five truths from 500 years ago, today being... The Sunday that we're celebrating Reformation Day, August 31st, 1517, over 500 years ago, or or 500 years ago, almost to the day, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church there in Wittenberg, and that's when the discussion began and a lot of the reform began to take place. But to be honest, it was started uh, long before then with men like John Wycliffe and Jan Hus and, and, and others that were already uh, sensing that there was corruption in the church, that the church was straying from the heart of the gospel. And here at Calvary Chapel, we've taken the last, uh, last Sunday and this Sunday just to take some time out and to recognize a little bit of our church history. I think it's important, you guys, that we as Christians recognize that we are part of something big, Something much greater than just us here in this sanctuary, but rather a movement that started really at the day of Pentecost and has continued until today, and God is continuing the work. And we want to make sure that we're respectful. We want to be those that tip our hat in a respectful way to the past, realizing and recognizing what they did for us and the foundations that they laid. And then we want to look to the future, excited about where God is taking us, Today and what he wants to do in our generation, in the young people's lives that are gathered here, and their friends and their generation. What does God, how how does God want to use the past to shape the future? And that's what we're going to be taking a look at today. You see, some things are so valuable that they are worth keeping no matter what the cost. And the gospel 
is one of those things. The gospel is one of those most valuable things, if not the most valuable thing, that we can be entrusted with. And the reformers of the 1500s were men who rightly valued it. And many of them paid the ultimate price as they defended it with their lives. So we're taking this time to look at the Reformation. And uh, again, I want to just really quickly remind us all that we don't want to over-exalt men as we do this. Uh, we, we need to recognize that there was a dark side to the Reformation as well. Things like uh, uh, racism against the Jewish nation, which came out of some of Martin Luther's later writings. Uh, things uh, like the oppression, militant oppression that John Calvin and his uh, board there in the city of Zurich uh, implemented to enforce church discipline in the city on everybody. Things like that that were, were not biblical and not good. But today I do want to just focus on the things that are good, that did come out of that, that we are still standing on and rallying around today. Men like John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, as I said before, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Luther, William Tyndale, and Conrad Grebel, Felix Manns, and John Calvin, among many others, who were all led by the Holy Spirit to reclaim the foundation, the foundational principles of the church. The European church of their day, you see, had strayed away from sound doctrine, They had strayed away from the gospel and the fact the gospel had been diluted and because of that, the church began to become corrupted. You know, when the church strays from the heart of the gospel, then you know that the watering down of doctrinal truth is always going to follow. And what follows the watering down of doctrinal truth is a corruption entering into the church. And we need to learn that from church history. We need to realize that. And so about 500 years ago, On October 31st, 1517, God raised up really a remarkable group of men from all over Europe to fight for and reclaim the principles of truth that center on the gospel message. And these have come down to us today in the form of five solas. And if you take out your outline, you'll see them there. And we will be going through those one by one. But the five solas is just, that's just a fancy way, it's a Latin phrase, and it's a fancy way to help us remember these five foundational truths that we want to rally around as the Christian church, the Protestant church. And, and, and that brings me to, uh, well, let's mention them very quickly, you have sola scriptura, and I have to say these with a Latin accent this morning, because they're Latin, okay? And so, you know, since I can, since I have that accent though, very, very good, because I lived in that country. I'm going to say these with an Italian... I, I'm sorry. It's all Latin. It's all Latin, guys. But let's check them out. We've got sola scriptura. We've got sola fide. We've got sola gratia. We've got solo Cristo. And we've got soli deo gloria. Okay? And these five foundational truths are what we're taking a look at today. The main theme of the message is that 500 years after the Reformation began, we can celebrate these five truths that unite Protestant churches, all Protestant churches today, and we need to remember why we still need them. We need to remember today why we still need these five truths. So the five solas of the Reformation were given to us. They've come down to us today. 
in order to answer four critical questions that the church was struggling with, and really that the church is called by God to answer in every age. What are those four questions? Well, they happen to be on your outline. The first one there is, how is a person saved? How is a person saved? Secondly, where does religious authority come from? Thirdly, what is the church? And finally, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or what is the essence of Christianity to being a Christian in this world? So we're going to take the rest of our time this morning, and we're going to one by one take an extremely concise look. And I emphasize concise because these truths, I mean, and as you study the Reformation, there's so much there that you could get into. We don't have time for that today. We're just going to have a concise look, okay, at each one of these five. And really, the very last two, I'm just kind of going to breeze over. But this first one, Sola Scriptura. While we're in 2 Timothy here, flip to chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and in just a minute, I'm going to read a couple of verses out of that chapter. But sola scriptura means by scripture alone, by scripture alone. And this principle really answers the question of where does church authority come from? Where does spiritual authority come from? Now, ultimately, some of us are going to say, well, it comes from God. And you would be correct. It does come from God. But God has revealed himself to us through inspired scripture. Godly men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit and wrote down the truths about God in the Bible. And so this principle reminds us that we must abide by some sort of an established authority when it comes to spiritual matters if we're going to have unity. And the supreme authority in spiritual matters is the Holy Bible. It is the scriptures alone that contain and clearly teach all of us what we need to know in regards to faith and salvation. Listen, whether you are a Christian and been a believer for 20 years, or whether you're visiting the church today and you're just trying to find out about Christianity, the supreme authority for all of us is the Bible. The Bible is a divinely inspired book. And what is it that makes it so? Well, for example, and these are just a few reasons, but here you have in this Bible 66 different books written by over 40 different authors, written in three different languages, spread across three different continents of the world over a period of 1,500 years, and yet, you know what? It doesn't contradict itself but rather has one clear, consistent message. It points mankind to Jesus Christ. It points us to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. That He came, He lived a perfect, sinless life, and He died on the cross for the sins of humanity. And that through faith, by grace, we can be saved when we confess that Jesus is Lord and when we put our trust for salvation in Him alone. So the Bible is consistent Now, now just take some of those facts and just let's think about a couple of them for a minute. Let's just say if we took 10 of you that are here this morning, and some of you live in Sumner, some of you are living in Blossom, some of you are living in, you know, Paris, and some of you are living, uh, let's say, up in Fought or somewhere like that, or maybe in Oklahoma town. And we take you guys, you 10, and we put you in a room separately, and we say, all right, we want you to tell us, we want you to tell us... uh, some, what is the meaning of life? 
And, and those 10 people were to write out what their definition of the meaning of life is. You know what? We would get 10 different things probably. You know, because they, there's not going to be consistency and clearness in what different people think is the answer for human, humanity. But with the Bible, we have that. Like I said, it's miraculous. It's divinely inspired. It's consistent. It's reliable historically, archaeologically, scientifically. Yes, scientifically and morally. And it answers the deepest questions of the human soul consistently. So all of that tell us that this book is special. It is the revelation of God given to humankind that we might find his will for our lives. Now, best of all, the Holy Scriptures are not open to personal or private interpretation. (laughs) They interpret themselves. In fact, I think God kind of... (laughs) was chuckling to himself when he uh, had the writers of Scripture, the, the divinely inspired men that wrote these truths down. As he penned them through these men, man, it's amazing. They're tamper-proof. The Scriptures are tamper-proof. I mean, you cannot just come along and take one little verse and develop your own religion. Oh, oh wait, there are people that have done that. But unfortunately, what they find is that as you interpret Scripture with Scripture, you begin to understand, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't line up. That doesn't line up with the whole revelation of Scripture. You see, that's the great thing about the Scriptures is God has sealed them and protected them. And it is tamper-proof. And the Protestant reformers understood this. And they clearly taught that the religious authority that was found in the right interpretation of Scripture alone, not in the interpretations of the Pope, not in the interpretations of an elite class of bishops, or overseers, but rather the word itself was the authority for spiritual truth. Now in the scriptures, we find all of the authority and truth that we need according to what God says. Check it out, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14 through 17. We'll read this together. And, and this, is, this is really, remember, this is Timothy that pens, or Paul that pens this letter to Timothy, but this is really the Holy Spirit. That is communicating with us. It says, But you must remain faithful to the things that you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have been given, or they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 All Scripture is inspired by God. And is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Amen. The Lord is so good. He gives us his word. It's God-breathed, divinely inspired, written down through men that were directed by the Spirit. And it is inerrant and without a contradiction in its entirety. And it contains God's will for our lives. And, and that's, this is a principle, you guys, that we need. Why do we need this? Why do we need this sola scriptura by scripture alone in our lives? Well, listen, this provides the healthy parameters that we need to know how to function, to know how to live our lives, 
to know what to do when questions arise and when things happen in life that we can't, we don't have the answers in ourselves for. Hey, the scripture is given. God breathed, inspired, and it's for all these purposes in our lives. God loves us so much that he gave us an instruction manual. He gave us a a set of parameters, a set of boundaries to operate within, and he established the spiritual authority. And who better to do that than God himself, right? All of these principles, these moral principles, where do they come from? They come from God's nature, the very nature of God, the characteristics of who he is. God's nature is where these principles come from, and that's what makes them the final authority in our lives. We come to number two now, sola fide. Sola fide. And sola fide means by faith alone. By faith alone. You can turn to Romans chapter 3 in your Bible this morning. Romans chapter 3. And we want to read beginning there in verse 21 down to verse 26, please. Follow along with me. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And this says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. I love that verse. No matter who we are, guys. Verse 23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. It's an equal playing field. Verse 25, for God, pres- or, uh, verse 24, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. I love those verses. Listen, those verses, we find the doctrine of by faith alone. By faith alone, we are made right with our God. Justification, that's just a fancy word for right standing. So our right standing before God, declares the scriptures, is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. God counts us as righteous before him when we believe the gospel of Jesus And the reason that God counts us as justified or made right is not because you're a good person, not because you gave your tithes and offerings, not because you did a good work, but because Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for you. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, and because of his goodness, because of his perfect sinless life, God is able to put to your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When you trust in Jesus... God does the good old switcheroo. I love that. The switcheroo is when he takes your nasty, filthy sin, and he takes it away, and he washes it in the blood of Jesus, 
But then get this, Jesus takes his robe of righteousness and he covers you. He covers you. And when God looks at you, you are right in God's eyes because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, your faith is the only means by which you can receive God's grace, the gift of eternal life. All of the good blessings that God has come through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Protestant reformers realized this. They realized this is what the scriptures taught. And they emphasized that justification is by faith alone. This was in contrast, you see, to the Roman Catholic Church, which insists that people are saved by faith and good works. The Protestant reformers were not saying that a believer shouldn't do good works. Okay? Let's not get confused here. They weren't saying that, oh, just say the sinner's prayer and you're good to go. That's not, that's not the message of the Protestant reformers. Okay, the Protestant reformers believed that because you said the prayer, because the Holy Spirit led you, and, 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 and uh, that saving faith was effective in your life, you would begin to do good works, naturally. That out of your life would begin to come a changed you because of what God was doing in your heart. But those were not the things that was the focus. It was, they were what came naturally after God did his work of regenerating, rebirth, of the rebirth in your heart. Protestant, uh, and so listen, we need to understand that because today this truth applies to our lives as well in a very unique and important way. You see, a lot of Christians today, we fight the fight of trying to do good, don't we? We try really hard to be good Christians, don't we? We try really hard to not sin. Especially those sins that we find ourselves repeatedly falling in. And we go, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try harder. i got to knock this off. And we slap ourselves around, spiritually speaking, and we fall into con- condemnation, and we beat ourselves up, and we think, you know, God doesn't love me anymore. Or i got to earn back my favor with the Lord because I fell again. And we fight this fight in our lives where we're constantly struggling in condemnation, believing what Satan wants us to believe, and that is that we're not good enough. That is that we'll never be good enough, that we're just losers, that we can't overcome, we can't have victory. And yet, here all this time, this truth is calling out to us by faith alone, that if you and I would realize that our right standing with God is not based on what we do, but rather upon who we are trusting in and what he already did, oh, we would be set free. We would be, we would be filled with joy to realize, wow, God, you love me, you accept me, even though I'm a nasty sinner, even though I still blow it, even though, God, I mess up often. You still love me, and my right standing with you doesn't change. Wow, that's amazing. Now, it's important always, always to say that, of course, God does not condone your sin. God does not love your sin. He hates your sin, but he loves you to death. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die for you. And that's why he wants you to know that it is by faith alone that you have right standing in his presence. So stop working for it. Stop striving for it. Stop trying to be good. Instead, I got a better solution. Instead of trying to be good, we should enter into training. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is is when we follow Jesus and we learn through following him and learning about him to do what's right. 
And we're not always going to be perfect. In fact, this side of heaven, we never will be. We know that. But our right standing never changes. It's by faith alone. Our third truth this morning is sola gratia. Ephesians chapter 2, please, in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 2. Salvation is by grace alone. Sola gratia. Sola gratia, by grace alone. We're going to read Ephesians 2. I want to read verses 1 through 10. And I know it's a lot of verses, but... There's nothing like the power of Scripture. God's holy Scriptures, when we read it and we take it in, it just does a transforming work in our hearts, and I love that. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, by grace alone, see what the word says. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. Wow, that puts it in a really romantic light, doesn't it? We were obeying the devil. We don't like to hear that. The commander of the powers in the unseen world, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Wow, what a dark picture. But I love verse 4. But God. Love the contraction there. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much. That even though we were dead because of our sins. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. You notice that all of that's in the present tense? <clears throat> Meaning that God saves you and, and then he puts you where you, he sees you present tense seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. It's amazing. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Verse 7, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all that he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You can't boast about your salvation. Verse 10, for we are God's masterpiece. Wow, God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Notice the order in those verses. First comes God's grace. Well, actually, first, we're lost, aren't we? First is disobedience you know, to God and obedience to the devil. But then God comes in, his grace. He intervenes. He draws us to him. He produces this saving faith. He regenerates our hearts. And he brings us along. And then he seats us in the heavenly realms. And then, you know what? Because we're so stoked. Because we're so excited about that. Because we're so blessed about all that God has done, we start serving him. We start serving him here on the earth. We start using our talents, our, experience, our life experience, our gifts, the things that we have, and we start offering them back to God. And we say, God, what, what do you want to do with this? How do you want to use me? 
And that is the order. That's the proper order. And so salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God because of our sinful nature. And the only way that we can be saved is through God's gift of his righteous son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. You know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Conrad Grebel, and many of the other reformers, they all stressed that salvation was by God's grace alone. You know, the church of their day stressed something different. The church of their day had strayed from the heart of the gospel, and they were stressing that salvation was actually uh, by God's grace, yes, by God's grace, yes, but also by human cooperation. Perhaps it's best summed up in the words of Ignatius Loyola, who's the founder of the Jesuit order in the 1500s, and he said this, pray as though everything depended on God alone, but act as though it depended on you alone, whether you will be saved. Now that sounds real good, doesn't it? (laughs) That sounds, ooh, holy. Man, I'm going to pray as though everything depended on God, but I'm going to live my life as everything depended on me. And very subtly, the flesh nature gets excited, doesn't it? Oh, there's something I can do. I'm going to live in such a way as if it depends on me. And then and the next thing you know, if, if you're anything like me, my pride just takes over. And I start looking around and go, okay, what can I do to show you that I'm holy? What can I do to show the world that I am indeed saved? And, and, and that I am going to be, you know, I, I don't have to go through purgatory. I'm going straight to heaven. Pass straight to heaven for me. Okay? And, and all this sort of thing. And, and it, it becomes very fleshly. It, it becomes something that becomes, hey, I'm gonna, it depends on me. It depends alone on me whether or not I'm going to actually be saved. Now, I pray desperately that it's not that way, but i got to live like it is. And that's a sad place to be. Unfortunately, there are many Christians in the Protestant churches today that are living that out. They're believing that it is through your merit, it is through your cooperation with what God is doing in your life that you are going to arrive one day in heaven. But, but the sad thing about that is, is that you, you would then be able to boast. You would then be able to say, well, check out what I did. Well, I wasn't as bad as that person over there. I, I, I was a lot better than all of them. And, and actually, you know, I'm pretty cool. And we would begin to talk like that. And you know what? That takes glory away from God. And God says, I share my glory with no man. I share my glory with no man. Fourthly, and we're going to touch these last two rather quickly, but fourthly, solo Christo, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, please, in your Bibles this morning. Solo Christo is in Christ alone, in Christ alone. And when we say in Christ alone, if you notice, all of the other solas end with an A, but this one ends in an O. Now, if you've ever studied Latin, you'll realize that there's a reason for this, that, that uh, it, this is saying that only Christ. The others are saying uh, in, alone, in, or in alone, or, or by that alone, but this is saying, listen, this is a little bit more specific. This is saying, look, this is the, only, this is the cornerstone. This is the foundation. And so let's check out what this means, in Christ alone. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
verse 5, says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Let's pause there. One God, one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, and that is Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, the man, yet also God, the one mediator given to us by God who reconciles God to humanity and humanity to God. He has accomplished everything that was needed for our complete salvation. Guys, that's what we rest in. Okay, this is where we rest as Christians. We trust Christ. He did the work. He did the work. It's accomplished. When he hung on the cross and he spread his arms out and he said, He was saying, it is finished. And he's referring to the entire work that is necessary to bring you in to the God's forever family. Jesus did it. So you need to rest in it. Receive it. Rest in it. Because it is by Scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, that our faith rests. And fifthly there, soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. That's what that one means. And that last phrase stands in contrast to the Roman Catholic Church's veneration of Mary And the saints. You see, since salvation, God's greatest gift to mankind is accomplished by God's will, through God's grace, and no other person deserves to be praised or worshiped or prayed to. The reformers believed that while it is and while it was and is still today acceptable to recognize exceptional men and women. And we certainly want to honor Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. She holds a very special place in, biblical, uh, in the Bible as well as in our hearts. But yet we also realize that she is not to be exalted or worshipped in any way. Because God has expressly laid that out as his right in Scripture. He has expressly told us that he will share his glory with no man or woman is the implication. And the reformers believe that, yes, it is acceptable to recognize and honor, but it was not acceptable to exalt to a status of worship and to pray to them as if you were, uh, uh, could receive grace or merit from those uh, dead humans. So rather... They said and they taught, one should give praise and thanks to God, glorifying him who is the author and the finisher of our faith and the one who enables us to live for him and to do anything that is good. Listen, in closing today, I want to share one simple reason with you why the Reformation is still important and so, so necessary today to you and to me. Uh, And then I want to just take one last moment to apply these five uh, foundational truths to our lives personally. But first of all, just this month, Pope Francis dropped a doctrinal bomb on the Catholic Church. And and I want to be careful because, listen, I'm not here to beat people up. Sometimes that might be the perception. But listen, there's a difference between slandering somebody and observing and making an observation and comparing that to Scripture and what the Scripture teaches, okay? And that's what I seek to do. Whenever I'm talking about uh, uh, somebody else or a, a faith, or uh, I'm sorry, not a faith, but a religion, a false religion, or uh, whether it be, you know, uh, 
the Catholic Church. This is out of an observation. So this, just this month, Pope Francis called for a change to the catechism of the Catholic Church. He stated very clearly that he will lead the magisterium of the Catholic Church in a doctrinal change regarding the death penalty. He states, and I quote, that the death penalty is contrary to the gospel. He said that however grave the crime that may be committed, the death penalty is inadmissible because it attacks the inviolability and the dignity of the person. That's from Pope Francis. Now this represents what he says is the development of doctrine as there has been a change now in the consciousness of Christian people on the question of the death penalty. No matter, you guys, that the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures both clearly mandate and uh, uh, responsibly say that it is deserving that there are crimes that the death penalty is deserving of. And they empower, the scriptures empower human government to exercise it for the good of the people that they represent. Also, not to mention that true justice really is what maintains dignity of all people everywhere. No, I didn't bring this up this morning to have a debate about the death penalty or capital punishment. That's, that's on the side. I'm sure that there are many people on different sides of that issue here today, but If you've been studying through the Old Testament with us on Wednesday nights, you know where I stand and where the Bible stands on that issue. But listen, that's not the point. The point here is is that the Pope is claiming that there's a changing consciousness of Christian people everywhere and that there's a need for doctrinal development. And here is actually stepping into the place of the catalyst for changing church doctrine based on that Christian conscience that has changed in his opinion. And listen, that is a dangerous place to be. because And, and that is really where the Reformation comes from in the first place. Because we believe that it's by Scripture alone. That's the spiritual authority in our lives. And here, Pope Francis is stepping and saying, no, I'm the spiritual authority. And, and, and the magisterium of the Catholic Church is the spiritual authority, and we together are going to work to change. We're going to develop the doctrine to better fit the Christian consciousness that we feel is working today. And it's a dangerous thing. And that's why we need these truths. By Scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We need them today. And lastly, personally, you need these truths in your life personally today. Why? Well, we talked about it. It creates the spiritual boundaries for your life. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? God has laid it out for you in the scriptures in many specific ways and in many general ways. And where you don't know, hey, you need to dive in and begin to study. You need to, you need to seek out the heart of the Lord in the scriptures for your life. I guarantee you, he will guide you. He will speak to you. Secondly, it's by faith alone. And this is so reassuring. It brings so much peace into our lives when we realize, wow, I'm not condemned. The condemnation comes from Satan. One place, it comes from Satan. He seeks to divide you. He seeks to separate you from God. He seeks to tear you down. He seeks to beat you up. But by faith alone tells me that, listen, my right standing doesn't come through whether or not I'm perfect every day. 
My right standing comes because I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior. He died for me on the cross. He's forgiven me, and in him I trust, and in him I rest. I rest in his finished work for my right standing with God. I have all the favor of God my Father through Jesus Christ, through my faith in him. Thirdly, by grace alone, this reminds me that, hey, it's not my good works, it's not my merits that's going to earn me anything. God just loves me because I'm part of his forever family. Just like a mom and a dad loves their kids, even when they mess up and do wrong, and man, we'd lay down our lives and do anything for our kids, wouldn't we, parents? God's the same way. Some of you are like, well, maybe not, not everything. But, but that's just, that just highlights the difference between us and God. He has an unconditional love for you. He just loves you because you're his kid, period. He's just in love with you. That's his grace, his unmerited, undeserved favor, his loving kindness showered upon you. And then thirdly and four, or fourthly and fifthly, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. Listen, we do everything that we do for the Lord. Are you serving him? Are you utilize, are you, have you been so impacted by what he's done for you, like the, the, the men of the Reformation were, that you'd be willing to lay down your life for the truth of the gospel, for the, for the purpose of the gospel? Listen, that sounds pretty romantic, but let me say it this way. Would you be willing to lay down your video game control for the sake of the gospel? Would you be willing to lay down your, uh, uh, your pride and fold a load of laundry for the sake of the gospel? Would you be willing to give up your life and to go serve a foreign culture for the sake of the gospel? Would you be willing to do all of these things for the sake of the... Now listen, so that, that reflects upon me. If I'm doing all of these things for the glory of God alone, then, then am I a husband are you a, a, a spouse to the glory of God alone? Could people look at you and say, wow, that person, they're serving the Lord. Let's pray.